0: one of the things that's still done there um, that we probably should adopt again, but uh, on his way out, he said every once in a while, someone will go by just weeping because in their 80s or their 90s, they've just understood that God loves them unconditionally and is trying to get them into heaven, not keep them out. Amen. And uh, so we were, re- were just real excited to be home. Uh, last week, we were at a wedding in uh, Colorado, in Winter Park, Colorado, uh, for uh, the, the oldest of Uh, Pastor Spiegel's son, some of you know that Mike Spiegel and I have been friends for many, many years. And uh, his oldest son was married in Winter Park last week, so we're glad to be home. Um, There will be one more week this fall, and I think Pastor Tim and I will both be absent. I think it's just one more, right? Yeah, and then uh, after that, we will be here for the duration until around Christmas, where I think there will at least be one of us present all the time. So you won't be getting away.
1: So one of the huge blessings... Um, of a road trip is um, shoulder time, and we have a lot of um, uh, opportunity just to talk about life and our relationship and um, family life and church life, and, um, you know, as the miles are ticking by, it's just such a sweet blessing as God lays upon our hearts just the opportunity to work through a few things. And um, one of the things that we talked about was uh, the progress that's happening right outside of us here and the opportunity to really share and talk about and pray over that, um, uh, our building and the uh, what's happening there. So do you want to give us kind of an update of what's happened this past week?
0: First of all, I want to say thank you, Jim Dunn, for the photos that you're looking at. this last this last week a lot of things happened in preparation for this moment that you're looking at on the screen but they uh they prepped and poured the foundation they're actually 6 days ahead in in pouring the not foundation but this slab uh which is good news because they're supposed to finish on April 11th April 21st is Easter and we're we've been kind of holding them to that to that time frame and they're really pushing to try to make that happen um, so uh if, you look, if you're look if you kind of looking at that screen, you can obviously see what's going on. A big pumper truck arrived about 7 a.m., uh, or about 6, 6.30 a.m., and by uh, 7, they were going strong. And this is as it's wrapping up, actually. They had 19 guys out there finishing concrete uh, so that this thing could be done. And we, they, they were happy that the day was a little cooler, and they could get some work done without it uh, hardening on the surface, without hardening below. So um, we were real happy with it. By the, by the end of the day, they were stripping forms and sawing the concrete. In the relief joints. If you notice, uh, some of you look under your feet, you'll see some little joints in the floor. Um, They're doing the same thing over there. So that if the floor does shift or move, it doesn't crack. It actually follows the lines that are already pre-cut for it um, to to crack, so to speak. So we just we're we're excited to see that those foundations going by. This is the floor your feet will be standing on, and your knees will be kneeling on in the new church. This is the worship center part of the floor.
1: That's so awesome. Um, And you know, we we thought about the importance of from week to week as the different um, portions of this building are going up, that as a church family, to gather together on Sabbath morning and um, pray God's blessing over what has been done and what will be done the next week. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we pray God's spirit in hands over our building project. Thank you. Shall we bow our heads? On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. This week we laid, Father, the foundation of this building that you have blessed, you have provided provision for, and, and oversight. And it is with excitement that we move forward in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we pray for the foundation. Um, Pastor Tim and Anna and Walt and I had the very distinct privilege of taking rocks with scripture verses, with paintings, with words of encouragement, and placing them in the foundation of this church. And um, we thank you, Father, because as Pastor Walt said, we look forward to standing on that foundation, which is Jesus Christ in this building. I pray that um, you would continue to bless, give get safety to all of those that are working in this space, and especially as um, uh, the next phase comes, and we just, we just pray your spirit into this process. Amen. Thank you so much for the blessing, for we bring it to you in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you. And thank you, Brenda. We will be uh, bringing you updates from time to time, maybe even week to week if we can uh, make that work. Um, one of the interesting things about this is listening to the contractors um, who are not uh, believers, as we kind of talk about things. And I I go by and I regularly say to these guys, "I'm praying for you," and and uh, I get different sorts of looks. Uh, sometimes they're like, "Did I do something?" <laughs> and uh, sometimes there there's a nod and kind of a thank you. Um, it, it was. It's interesting to hear them talk about things. Um, when I mentioned, I mentioned that the weather was a, was an improvement for them, and uh, the the guy who's the uh, the manager of this particular part, he's the project uh, manager. So there's three different guys. There's one that's being trained. There's a guy who's watching over the money, and there's a guy who's just watching over the other contractors. That guy, his name is Mike. Big tall guy. And Mike says to me, uh, he looks at me with a little tiny bit of a smile breaking on the corner of his lips, and he said, well, we had good luck. It's a, it's a cooler day, to, so pouring the cement went much easier today. And I just looked back at him, and boy, I, I, I told Tim later, I should have just said, it's God's grace, it's God's blessing, and um, and it's supposed to be cool for the next two weeks, this week and next week, and the second and last pour of floors is next week. And so I'm gonna to try to take the opportunity to to start taking that next step with them. But it's just fun. Tim and I were invited to uh Oktoberfest, um, fundraiser coming up in October where all the beer we could drink was available. <laughs> And after the, the invitation, if they had invited uh, Tim and I and made sure that I was going to uh, tell Tim, uh, one of them looked at us and said, looked at me and said, oh, you guys probably don't drink as much beer as we do. <laughs> and I said, yeah, we don't drink any, in fact. But it was just, it's just fun to to get an opportunity to talk a little bit and interface a little bit with the folks. Good people. Um, uh, there's a, a the contractors who are pouring the floor just started their business this last year um, And they're they're trying to get that thing going. It's a district uh, district construction It's all concrete that they do um, run by uh, father and sons and cousins They have about six jobs going and they have a cousin who's running each one of those jobs and today and the young and the son who you see dad who's clearly an older man and his son who looks like he's in his 20s or 30s and the son's out here running the job on here so i i pray for gerardo extra because i i feel like you know his dad kind of watches over him as he's watching over the job and that's got to be a little intimidating for him so anyway exciting things are going on exciting times for our church and we just want to keep you up to speed on it don't forget to pray for them and if you decide to bake some cookies and bring them by and drop them off. I guarantee they will be eaten. And it would be just be a great, great way to bless the folks who are out there. If you have little kids and you want to bake them with the kids, bring them. Just make sure you take the ones that had the weird things stuck in, out, and just bring them the ones that are safe to eat. But uh, I just really would think there's great opportunities for us to bless the folks. If you're in one of the divisions leading one of the kids groups, and you want to sign a card thanking them for what they're doing, uh, go ahead. We'll be happy to deliver it. We... Um, we're just trying to find ways to say this is not your ordinary building, and this is not your ordinary project. Um, this morning, as uh, Tim introduced you last week to a new worship, new series, and this series is in is based on this uh, image or this sign that's behind us that says "Live Like Jesus." Live Like Jesus. And um, we're going to be walking through several characters in the Bible, looking at their stories and how they reveal what living like Jesus looks like. And so this morning, we're going to talk about worshiping like Abel. Last week, you talked about walking like Enoch. And I love Pastor Tim's description of riding the roller coaster where he had to be fully dependent on some engineer's calculations. I've ridden that roller coaster, and I get that. That was a scary moment when they tip you over, and you know you're about to go on a roller coaster. But we're going to move on to worship like Abel. Now, I don't, we most of us think of the story of Cain and Abel, we don't think of worship. For some reason, we think about Cain, we think less about Abel. But the story is about the worship of one son and the worship of the other son. The story is truly a story about worship. And we're going to be looking at the story in Genesis, and we're going to be looking at the story in, in, as it was repeated in Hebrews Hebrews just picks up a couple of highlights. You remember the story is in Genesis chapter 4. If you're looking for Genesis, you're new to the Bible, it's the first book. It's easy to find. Genesis chapter 4. If you've got out your device or your Bible, you can follow along with us. I'm going to put the primary texts on the screen, though they won't all be up there. So as we begin the story, it's, an, it's one that most people, even people unfamiliar with the Bible, somehow know the story of Cain and Abel. It's used to illustrate sort of ultimate evil, a, a brother killing a brother. And it begins like this. When they grew up, that's Cain and Abel, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. So what's the difference between the boys? A shepherd, a sort of a rancher, herder, a sheep herder, and a farmer. Right, one of them tills the soil; the other one raises sheep. When it was time for the harvest, so the harvest has arrived for the vegetables, for the sheep, because you can harvest, or for the uh, the the uh, plants. Sorry, you can harvest sheep at any time. When the time came for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. He brought some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portion of the firstborn lambs from his flock. So both boys bring the result of their work during that year, and they come to, to have this moment, this interaction with God, when they're going to worship God. The Lord accepted Abel's gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain what? very angry and he looked dejected made him mad and you can see it right on his face Cain and his offering were not accepted abel and his were accepted that difference was not not going over well with cain cain's the older brother in this setting and i don't know if that rolls into it or not but it is definitely clear that cain is the older brother why are you so angry god said to him why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. Look, man, there's no big deal here. If you, if you do what I've asked you to do, because clearly there's a right and wrong, and clearly they know it. And Cain is actually being told by God. God doesn't just kick him to the curb. He goes back and he actually speaks to him. There's an interaction between God and Cain helping to correct his action. God is actually being corrective like he does with you and I. You know that when you step off the rail, God's, God will come to you and he'll bring that conviction and power of the Holy Spirit to kind of reset your thinking, right? Happens to you guys too, right? I'm not the only one? Okay, good, good. So so he's then speaking to him, trying to help him move back to the, to the place where he wanted him to be. And then he says, Watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. Stop there for a sec. Have you ever had the conviction of God just really dig deep, bore deep on your life, and you rejected it? That's a dangerous spot right there. Because when you start to push back against the convictions of God, you're pushing back against a correction from God that is to your benefit. God doesn't do corrections of humankind for His for his benefit. God isn't out there saying, Well, I, I need to have these people do the right thing. It makes me feel better about myself. God does not need to feel better about Himself. And He certainly doesn't need us to help with that. So these corrective measures that God does don't change God. They don't affect who God is and how God's day is going. They affect us. God is trying to help us feel the abundance of blessing that is found when walking in the path He set for us. That's what the Bible means when it says, abide in me. Abide in me is simply, I've set you on this path, stay on that path, stay connected with where I have. It's what Jesus described when he says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said, there's a better life on my path than there is on the other path. And so this is simply Jesus, the Holy Spirit speaking to him, or God speaking directly to him, saying, hey, you know what the right thing was? You already understood what you were supposed to do, and you did something else. Okay? So just simply do the right thing. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to what? Control you. Will we be controlled by God? Will, be, will, be, will we be surrendered to God? Or, we will, or will we be controlled by sin? The change, the, the, the decision has never been any different. It's never changed. It's always been the same. And you and I face it right now, sitting here in church. Every time we face that temptation, every time that sin sort of gets a grip on us, we are having the same discussion with God that Cain had. We're saying, you know what's right. I just want you to do that. You will be blessed. There will be an abundance. There will be wonderful if you do that. If you don't, sin will get hold of you, and it will control you. And some of us know what it means to be controlled by sin. It's usually that one that we've practiced over and over and over again. And it's it's one that we indulge in, it's one that we come back to, one it's one that calls from us, calls to us from far away when we've wandered into the will of God and stayed there for a long time. That sin keeps beckoning us to come off the trail and follow after it. Those of you who know what alcoholism is or other addictions are, you know how deeply that can work in someone's life. It can really control who you are. And he's saying, watch out. Watch out. Yeah, you've done the wrong thing, but it doesn't have control on you yet. I'm speaking to you so that you can make corrective actions so this rebellion that's inside of you doesn't get hold of you. Know anybody who's in rebellion? Ever looked in the mirror and found that person? That's what he's talking about. Be cautious, be careful, be aware. But you must subdue it and be its master. You make the right decision. By the authority and power of God, it cannot, it can't hold on to you. It can't hold on to you. And then he finishes, One day Cain suggested to his brother, Let's go out into the fields. Now, it probably had happened before. Cain keeps crops. Maybe he you know, shows him his... Latest squash triumph. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This illustration pops up several times in the scripture. A description of the ultimate end of sin. If you fall in and and fully embrace the rebellions that are in part of your sinful life and sinful nature, it ends in the destruction of someone else. You may not kill them. But you might destroy their reputation. You might destroy them financially. You might destroy them in some other way. But it ends up in the destruction of some other person. That's the end of sin. Sin sin brings us into an alliance with Satan. And Satan's goal is to destroy the children of God. And we align ourselves on that side. That's where we end up. We align ourselves on God's side. That abundant life starts to become clear we align ourselves on the rebellion's side, we will eventually join in the destruction of the children of God. Could it be any clearer? We're in the fourth chapter of the Bible. And the lines are drawn as clear as they are drawn anywhere in the Bible. This is the result of choosing the rebellion. This is the result of choosing to follow God. The crazy thing is, The guy who chooses the rebellion is alive. And the guy who chooses to follow God is dead. How abundant is that? Next thing he sees is Jesus. Not such a bad deal, after all. You go to sleep. And the next time your eyes are open, there's Jesus. That's it. Maybe that isn't such a bad thing. God has given us, by His grace, a way to stop our perception of time when we die. So that somebody who died at the beginning of creation, and somebody who dies the day before Jesus comes, has the same experience. They close their eyes, and when they opened, there was Jesus. When Abel opens his eyes... It will be as if he had just fallen asleep. Last night, I was really tired. This has been a crazy bit of travel. We've been in a couple of three different time zones, and all that back and forth kind of threw my whole world off. And uh, as I was just starting to recover, about 3.30 in the morning on Thursday night, the dog decided to chase what I think was a skunk that was in the park behind our house and awaken me. So I'm going to the door trying to quiet the dog down because I don't want to wake the rest of the neighbors at 3.30 in the morning. But then I'm laying there with my eyes open. I can't get them to go back to sleep. So what usually happens at that point is is God will bring somebody to my mind. And there were some folks that came to my mind from within our congregation. And I prayed for them for a while. And often after I pray for them, then God will just say, okay, now go back to sleep. Well, I couldn't, and I didn't, and I so I was up and all the rest of the day and into the evening, and so by about 7.30 last night, um, I was feeling pretty tired. Now, the person in our family who falls asleep at 9 is not me. It's a different person. Someone else in our family and house who will not be named, but another person is a regular 9 o'clock lights out person. The last night, while she was on the phone with one of our kids, and they were chatting, I brushed my teeth, I got ready for bed, I laid down, and I was gone. (laughs) And the next thing I knew, it was time to get up. Nothing through the night, no noisy dogs, no whatever, just sleep and awake. That's what God did for Abel. Maybe it's not as bad a deal as we think because the bible says when you when you die it's like going to sleep so as the story goes on i have to i have to clear up one piece there are actually fables written about why abel's offering was accepted people look at this text and they say what's with god why is he being so capricious here why accept that guy and his offering and not that guy and his offering well, I want you to think about a couple of points here. There's something else happening here. There's a backstory here, I believe. I believe there's something going on. So look at it here. I think if you look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 21, just the previous chapter, the Bible says Adam and Eve were clothed by God with the skins of animals. How do you get the skin off an animal? How do you explain death to a being who's never seen it. You see, Adam and Eve came into a world where there was no death, and God said, if you sin, you will die. And Adam and Eve, when they realized they had sinned, what did they make their clothes of? Anybody remember? Fig leaves. They dressed themselves in fig leaves, which was like the first itchy piece of clothes. Have you ever actually held a piece of fig leaf? Next time you're around one, rub it on your skin and tell me that wouldn't be itchy. Somehow they managed to sew that all together and make themselves fig leaf outfits. And then when God found them and he talked about what was going on, and the the, the discussion in chapter 3 takes place, chapter 3 ends with God resolving the problem of their nakedness and their shame, and he covers them with animal skins. Now God certainly could make animal skins just on the place. Hey, we'll do mink. Poof! But I think what happens here is God demonstrates what death is by killing the animals, explaining it to them. And I imagine that was a horribly tearful, heartbreaking moment for Adam and Eve. Can you imagine? They've never seen anything die. And then God brings over one of those cute little animals and he says, this is what it looks like. This is why I was trying to keep you from rebelling. This is what happens when you rebel. And there must be a sacrifice made. This is what death is. And this is what your inheritance is. But I'll take the inheritance for you later. And he kills the animal, spills the blood, takes the skins and makes their covering. Boy, there's the whole Bibles right there. Kills the animal, spills the blood and makes a covering. For their sinful state. And so these people are living in those skins. And then you come to the next story. The boys are grown. They're grown enough that they're working. They've picked professions. And as they are working, Abel brings an offering on an altar, which apparently God taught them about building. And he sacrifices an animal from his flock on that altar. It appears that God explained to them the price of sin and demonstrated what they were to do to commemorate that cost. Why? So they would not do it again. You get it? This is what it costs when you break our covenant. This is what happens when you break our covenant. Death is the result of breaking that covenant. Let me explain to you. Let me show to you. And so Abel comes with the sacrifice of his animals. And Cain comes with some carrots. And God responds positively to Abel's offering. Now, either this is the capricious act with no context or it is in fact a demonstration that God is serious about the explanation that sin causes death and blood will be spilled and he will take the ultimate punishment, the ultimate inheritance of that sin. You with me so far? Does this make sense to you? Otherwise, this is a really weird picture sort of sitting out there by itself, and there's no way to explain it because here's this God who suddenly demands blood, and I don't know why he's happy about that and not happy about the carrots. There's no explanation. It just is. But everything in the story from there to the end of the Bible lines up with the idea that this was a sacrifice. Everything in the story from there to the end of the Bible is in alignment with the actions of Abel. The actions of Abel and God are consistent with the revelation of the rest of the entire Bible. As Genesis shows the Genesis, the beginning of every element of the problem we're finding ourselves in, as we see where sin came from, now we're seeing the results of sin, now we're seeing the sacrificial system in its infancy being born... All of which will be spelled out further. When we start being introduced to other characters, this sacrificial system is ingrained in Abraham. This sacrificial system is ingrained in Noah. This sacrificial system is deeply ingrained in the people from this place forward. Where do they learn it? This seems to be the place. You got me so far. So, the act of Abel is an act of worship. Got it? It seems that as Abel acknowledges the gift of God in the sacrifice to come, and he's trusting God for a promise. This is a little bit new territory, so I'm kind of trying to go slow so it makes so it gets in. The relevance of it gets in. Abel apparently is acknowledging a gift from God. He's not bringing a gift to God. He's acknowledging the gift of God and the promise that is to come right back in genesis chapter 3:15 it talks about the seed of god his seed this one who was to come who would crush the head of satan of the of the snake and who would be wounded for the transgressions of that people who would be wounded as a result of that process but not killed all of it's right here the whole Bible is right here, right in these first chapters of Genesis. The introduction to all the things that you will find in the, revel- in the revelatory uh, theology of Romans are right here at the beginning of Scripture. Apparently Abel is acknowledging a gift from God. Get the difference. Abel is acknowledging a gift from God that will point to a sacrifice made on his behalf. Abel is acknowledging a gift from God. Cain, however, brings an offering that he hopes will curry favor with God. He's bringing a gift to God. God is acknowledging a gift from God. Do you see the difference? Here's the difference in all religion in the world. Biblical, spiritual followers of God are not going to bring a gift to God to try to change God's attitudes. They already recognize God's attitude. They recognize His love for them. They're not bringing a gift to God to curry favor with God. They are actually acknowledging the gift of God, which is causing them to worship, causing them to fall in love with Him, causing Him to want to follow them. Abel is acknowledging the gift of God. Cain is bringing a gift to God. The other kind of worship and the worship of every single idolatrous people for the rest of history is bring a gift to the God to curry favor with the God to make the God do what you want them to do. It's right here at the very beginning of Scripture. We have that process that we call legalism in our theological monikers of the day. Legalism is the attempt to manipulate God's behavior by my actions. Whereas Cain has come to acknowledge the gift of God, the love of God, the sacrifice of God, by this demonstration of his own understanding. The worship of God is based on my response to the amazing actions of God. The worship of God is not meant for me to be able to make God do what I want. The worship of Baal and Asherah and every other Thor you name, that you name the idol, you name the god, you name whatever pagan source you want to name. But it's always the same acts of worship. That's what Cain is doing. It's why this is such a significant moment. It's a hinge point in the history of mankind. One man brings his carrots and he says, "God should appreciate my carrots. They're awesome." And the other man brings his lamb and he says, I appreciate God's sacrifice. It's amazing. It's an issue of worship. It's an issue that is a person's recognition of who God is. Not God's recognition of how cool I am. You get the difference. Worshiping like Abel is worshiping with your whole heart. Nothing held back. Honest, full heart, connected relationship with understanding who God is. Full heart, engaged with the heart of God. Why is David called a man after God's own heart? Because he understands heart. He understands God. He understands God's motivations and his sacrifice and his willingness to accept and draw back and get us into his kingdom. He understands that he desires nothing more than to save his children. He understands that he's not putting roadblocks between us and heaven. He's trying to get us in, not keep us out. David is no better than any of us. He makes lots of mistakes. In fact, I bet I could line your record with David's record and most of you would do okay. If it was simply a scale and we put David on one side and you on the other, you win. But it's David's heart, David's understanding, David's recognition of God that is making the difference. He's a man after God's own heart. There's a heart-to-heart connection. He knows the heart of God. Worshiping like Abel is to be in that kind of connected understanding of who God is. It's not about who I am. It's about who he is. Worshiping like Abel is recognizing God and being wholehearted. It also celebrates faith in God's actions. Abel will be called a man of great faith. Well, why? He brought a lamb. He killed the lamb. What's the big deal? Lots of people kill lambs. Lots of people kill them just to eat them. Is there some grand glorious activity in murdering a lamb? Lamb murder happens every day. And if you're in PETA's shoes, lamb murder and Cain murders and Abel murder is the same thing. I don't necessarily agree with PETA. There's a big difference between Abel and the lamb. But people kill lambs all the time. So what's the grand act here by this man? It's in following the instructions of God. He's reaching out in faith to a future yet unseen but promised by God. That the sacrifice of the Lamb will come and the blood of the Lamb will cover just like the skins I'm wearing. Worshiping like Abel is worshiping in alignment with God's design. It's worshiping in the way that God is calling us to. It's worshiping not in a way that we think makes God happy about us. It's worshiping in a way that says, I'm happy about God. I know that those sentences are only subtly different, but their their theological and and personal intent is revolutionary. It's a completely different reason to be here. You stand up and you sing, and you don't sing because you're supposed to. You sing because you want to. Did you hear that ocean song? Did you Did you follow the words? The next time you hear it, remember that this is telling you the story of Peter. And it's inviting you into that experience. The story, it says, you invite us out upon the water. Where feet may fail, but faith will stand. That's Peter. Come on, Peter. You can do it. And the story ends with, I will stand With my savior and my faith is strong it's the it's that invitation to the impossible by a god who cares about you and wants to introduce you to what abundance really looks like worshiping because you've encountered a god who did did, is doing everything possible to get you into heaven is why you're here worshiping like abel is saying i haven't seen it yet but i trust that it's coming I haven't seen it yet, but I trust that it is coming. I've heard about the sacrifice of Jesus. I wasn't there. I believe that it happened. And I trust that when He said He'll come back, He'll do it. I haven't seen heaven yet, but I believe that it is happening and it will come. I trust God. I trust God. I trust God. The biblical introduction in Hebrews 11 is a description of that very thing. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. It's evidence of things that you just hoped would happen. Evidence of things that are completely unseen. Things over the horizon. It's, faith is being able to see all over the horizon and say, yep, it's coming. It declares in that place, hey, you'll be standing against what people believe about what happened. Lots of people are going to say, come on, God made it? Yeah, right, sure, there was a God, He made everything. Right, of course. We stand in a place where our culture has never been more in favor of an evolutionary idea about where we came from. We stand at a time when that faith is challenged daily. I mean, something that is not as innocuous as a children's TV show. Yep, it's all about evolution. Something as as, as simple as a National Geographic presentation about a rabbit. Oh yeah, it's all about this millions of years it took to get those ears. And the scripture says, right in the introduction to Hebrews 11, this is not about science, it's about faith. <laughs> Theirs and yours. To believe it took millions of years for the rabbit's ears to grow is an outstanding measure of faith. It's even more amazing when they consider the rabbit's eyes and its reproduction system. How did that one rabbit live long enough to make another rabbit? Sideline, sorry. Sorry. And when you start wrapping this story of Abel up, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith. Here's the story. Why did he show up with a lamb? Because he trusted God. Bottom line. By faith, Abel showed up with a lamb instead of some carrots and some celery and some cabbage. Abel showed up with a lamb, and he offered it to God. A better sacrifice than his brother. That's the issue here. There was, it was great, there, you know, if, if, if Cain had come and said, God, thank you for the produce of my field, that's great, I just wanted to bring this to say thank you. Fine. There are thank offerings in the scripture, lots of them. Would have been perfectly okay. Perfectly acceptable. But by faith, you see the future. In thanks, you see the past. Do you see the difference? Abel is bringing something that represents the past. Cain Cain is bringing something that represents the past. Abel is bringing something that represents the future. By faith, Abel shows up with a lamb. And he offers a better sacrifice than his brother. Through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous from God. Was he still broken? Was he still caught up in sin? Was mankind still plagued by sin when Cain and Abel stood in front of those altars? Sure they were. Cain is a clear representation that that was happening. So Abel is still in the same struggle and battle that you and I are. But he was given the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gift. God testifying about the Lamb. Saying, by faith you brought the Lamb believing in my Lamb to come. And through faith. Through the faith that he showed that day. And through the faith that you have in what he's done. Through the faith that you have in scripture. And the faith that he had in the coming sacrifice of God. By faith. Abel still has a testimony. Even though he's dead. He still speaks. I have a good friend and fellow pastor. His name is Dan. I haven't seen him in a long time. I don't know. You know, once you, once you establish good relationships and friendships, they last even when you haven't seen your friend. Dan told me this story one day of coming home late. He was, uh, he was kind of a classic pastor's kid in a lot of rebellious stuff going on. And he came home late at night. I think he said it was two or three in the morning, maybe, maybe even three or four in the morning. He said, I was sneaking into the house, you know, slide the key carefully into the slot, open the door very gently, make sure that there's no squeaking, steps into the house, and the house came into the sort of the entryway foyer, and there was a, there was a living room off to the side. And as he stepped into the house, beautifully, as silent as a ninja cat burglar, and turned to close the door very quietly, his eye caught something, and he heard a slight murmuring, And off in the living room, in the dark, kneeling by a chair, was his father. And he stopped in the silence of the darkness, and he listened. And in that quiet, murmured, whispered prayer, he heard his name. That moment of his father's faith, Changed his life. That moment, hearing his father pray for him, changed his life. That moment, seeing his God through his father, hearing his father in his worship, changed his life. For a believer, Moffat says, the death is never the last word. Death is never the last word of a righteous man. Because there's a testimony that lives on beyond you. Because there is a testimony that will outlive you in the lives of your family and your children and your neighbors and the people you've loved and cared about. Because there is a testimony that is transformative of the world for the betterment of the kingdom in your life. Walk like Enoch. Worship like Abel. Let's pray.